Um, the Bible reading today is from Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11, um, found on page 262 of your Bibles. And we're going to be reading in two sections. First part is verses 1 to 18, and part 2 will be from 22 to 27. In the spring of the year, the time when kings got, go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanliness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today, also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. 
And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. We're going to verse 22 now. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his wife, to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Please keep your Bibles open. Thanks for that. I think the children are going to go off and look at that passage. You might think that's a tricky one for children to look at, but uh, Debbie's got some pictures and some wonderful ways of teaching that story and God's goodness in it, and so they're going to go with her. And as they do, let's think about something. It's usually good to come to the Bible with something going on in our minds. And I think the question I'd like to ask tonight is, why is it that some people really struggle to think that Jesus will be a great king and therefore want to follow him? Why is it that people struggle to think that Jesus is a great leader? But it may be that by and large, great leaders are usually not great leaders. So we have people who seem to be very promising and then we discover that they are hugely flawed. And it is really hard then for us to think, is there anyone, anywhere, that we can trust and follow? Is there anyone who will look after people and treat them well? Is there anyone who we can aspire to be like when actually a lot of leaders are able people but we tend to see them doing things that we would never do? So that uh, Maria in uh, Bulgaria, I think, has got a politician called Mr. Dugan. And uh, you ask uh, uh, Maria uh, what uh, that leader is like. It's not just Mugabe and other leaders in the world who fail. Is there any leader that we can look up to and trust and follow? Well, if there's no leader in the world, how can we imagine that there could be a leader like Jesus that we would want to treat in that way? And that's especially true when you look at church leadership and when you see that church leaders are in the headlines for getting it wrong. 
And you think, how can there be a great leader of the church if those who represent him do so badly? But those are questions that we're going to find in, uh, answered in this part of the Bible as we think about a leader of God's people, who David was, who was deeply flawed and got it wrong. And the first thing I want to tell you is actually it's in the Bible. There's no covering up what has uh, uh, come to us as great failure. And we're going to be learning from that failure three things. We're going to be learning about David who is a fallen king. We're going to be learning about David who is a clever king. But we are going to be learning about David who is under an all-seeing God. Okay? So first we're going to look at David as uh, ultimately um, a fallen king. Well, he doesn't actually come across like that in the build-up. If you've been here with us week after week in the story so far, is that David has been a king that's getting us ready to understand what Jesus will be like one day. And he is the person who, whose kingdom it is, when you look at it, you say, may a kingdom like that come. We want a king like that ruling over us. And so far, we've seen how David was righteous and faithful. That's been described really well in previous uh, bits of the Bible. In 1 Samuel chapter 26, that comes across in verse 23. We've seen in the past how David is kind and good. I'm hoping you'll be able to remember what he was like with that crippled man called Mephibosheth. I hope you can remember last week what he was like with uh, Hanan, the Ammonite king, when his father died. David has been kind and good. And whatever it is, David has been successful wherever he went. So here is God's king showing us what God's kingdom is like in the story so far. This is God's kingdom in small form in the world. And we can look at it and long for it. But what sadly we discover in this chapter is that David, after all that, is the fallen king. This chapter is a big shock if you've watched David so far. This chapter in the story of David is like Genesis chapter 3 in the story of the world. Everything starts brilliantly and then this. David's gone brilliantly all the way through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and then this. He falls. Just like Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. It's that kind of language we'll see. And if you want to, before you get to the explosion of him getting it really wrong and getting it doing it wrong in verse Four, you can see what people might call the gunpowder trail before. First, where did he go wrong? He remained in verse 1. It's the time of year when kings go out uh, to war and David, for the first time, is not behaving like a king. He remains in Jerusalem. That's not good. 
Second thing you find in verse 2 is that he saw a beautiful woman. And what he saw, he desired. Now, that is actually Garden of Eden stuff. If you read about uh, Eve in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3, I think around about verse 6, it says that she saw that the fruit was good to behold and a delight to her eyes. And so she took of it and ate. And one of the big danger notes of the Bible that we really ought to be remembering in a very clear way is that when we want to be godly, that help is given to us usually through our years, through what we hear spoken about from what God says. Godliness comes through the ears, temptation comes through the eyes. And whenever you look and see and desire, that is usually a time when we are particularly uh, fragile and fall. And David saw and he desired, like Eve did. That's why I think it's really important for us when we're looking at uh, pictures on a screen like this to understand the visual learning, which is actually a helpful thing, should usually come with words. If we just simply have pictures on their own, well, they can be ambiguous and misleading. And David was certainly misled by what he looked at. It's generally a good reason, actually, why parents might want to take great care in what their children watch. Because that's usually the road through down which temptation comes. David remained, David saw, and then he took. And uh, that is so sad to see in verse 4. And he sent messages and took her and lay with her. And what's really sad about that is that the person that he took, he shouldn't have taken for very, very good reasons. First, because actually she was a godly woman. Uh, this child that she was taking, or bath, or whatever, where she was using to wash herself, well, that wasn't just uh, a person having an evening uh, freshen up. Uh, she was being godly. She was actually doing what the Bible tells all women to do in the Old Testament, not now, but where the regulations are there in, in Leviticus, that after a time of month, uh, when women's had a period, she would have uh, a cleansing that she would do to... And it tells us that in verse 4, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's incidentally how we know that David is the only one who could be the father of her child, because obviously it was that time of month, and he was the first person to lie with her, um, or lay with her. Her husband was on the battlefield, nowhere near her. So she was a godly woman wanting to live under the Bible. If you look at her dad's name, she is the daughter of Eliam, and again, we won't go through the details now, but that puts her into a family that is very loyal to King David. In fact, her granddad is a man called Ahithophel, we'll meet him later, who's one of David's best advisors. But the main reason why he shouldn't have gone near is because she is the wife of Uriah 
the Hittite in verse 3 at the end. And that is the drum roll that you get right throughout this chapter. She is always the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Even after Uriah the Hittite dies in verse 26, twice after he's died, it's mentioned she is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. There is no way he should have gone near her for that reason. So here is the person who is meant to be God's king and meant to be showing us what God's kingdom looks like and yet he is the fallen king and he is nothing like God in the way that he behaves. But the second thing we learn about him is that he is the clever king because he tries to cover up what he's done. And so therefore, plan A is to get Uriah the Hittite to come home and to send him home to spend the night with his wife. And the dates are sufficiently close for the next child to be born to have been his. But the interesting thing is Uriah is called the Hittite. In other words, he's a foreigner. He's not an Israelite. He's a Hittite. But he is the best Israelite in this chapter. Because he is very faithful to the God of Israel. So he actually explains that he won't go home to his wife when he doesn't and David asks him. He sends him home instantly and you might just notice that he sends him home with a gift. I imagine that's a nice bit of food and a good bottle of wine to have a nice romantic evening with his wife so that they can all then have a great uh, night together. But Uriah doesn't go anywhere near her and he sleeps instead in verse 9 at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. And when David asks him, why didn't you go down to your house at the end of verse verse 10? Uriah answers, a bit like David in chapter 7. You might remember David in chapter 7 said, look, it worries me that the, the, the ark of God is in a tent and I'm living in a house. There's an inconsistency there. It shouldn't be like that. I want to do something better for God than to let his ark stay in a tent. Well, it's that sort of language that Uriah is now using in verse 11, saying, how can I go into a house when God's ark is in a tent? I, I, I can't do that. He's, he's got David's heart in uh, chapter 7. But then David says, okay, well, let's try again. And he invites him and gets him drunk in verse 13. But it's interesting how David, how Uriah drunk is better than David sober. Because he won't go and spend the evening with his wife. He's still a man of principle. And so the next thing he does is the plan B. When the solution that he had in his mind turns actually out into a problem, because if Uriah hasn't gone anywhere near his wife, then definitely that child is going to be seen to be David's. He therefore covers up in a different way. He sends Uriah back with his own death warrant effectively in his hand, and he tells Joab, put this man into the killing zone 
and then leave him isolated. I want him dead. And so David's cleverness comes into play. And you think that that's what it's like. Clever people do clever things and it seems like the plan worked and he got away with it. And then what happens? It's very good PR after that, isn't it? Because when Uriah dies, David does the very noble thing of looking after his bereaved wife and bringing up her son as if his own. What a wonderful thing to put in front of newspapers and to show that you are a caring king. It seems like he's completely got away with it, except when you get to the very last line of the last verse of chapter 11, where it says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. If I can put it like this, the thing that David done, literally, was evil in God's sight. That's what it literally says. Now you might think through this chapter that God has been pretty silent. There's no word from God and no divine way of stopping David doing what he shouldn't have done. God's been pretty quiet. But although he might have been silent, he hasn't been sightless. He has seen. And what David did, therefore, he did in front of or under the God who sees everything. And that God is then going to work. And so, therefore, from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 20, you will see from now on things unravelling in David's life as what he did brings a crisis into his own family and certainly a crisis into his kingdom. But it does leave us asking, doesn't it? Where does this leave us with David? After all, he was the one who was meant to be the king who was going to give us a longing for Jesus the king. How can we pray your kingdom come after we've seen this happening in David's kingdom? But you remember the promise that God made in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is that actually the forever perfect kingdom that he will bring is going to be actually through David's son, who is constantly referred to as the son of David, at least Jesus is constantly referred to as the son of David when he comes. And he doesn't use people the way that David used Bathsheba. It is interesting, isn't it? There's no conversation between the two of them when you describe what happened. It's just action. He takes, he lies. There's no relationship there. But with Jesus, there is compassion, there is serving, there is care for the people that he met. And wonderfully, he is the one, the Bible tells us, we can therefore aspire to be ourselves because when, if you are one of his people and he is your king, then when you see him in the future, you will be like him. I think the greatest joy of heaven for me is that one day I will be like him. I think a lot of people, when... They're not Christians. Think of heaven as the sort of place where you've got the E-type jack and everything else uh, that you didn't have in this life and all your dreams come true in that way. But the greatest joy for us 
if by God's people, is that we can be like this king who is attractively put forward in front of us like Jesus. And therefore we do look at David's kingdom and we long for God's kingdom to come because we know it isn't going to be like David's kingdom. David is a reflection of Jesus but he's not a carbon copy of him. And we can long for uh, the king that God has promised who will bring that perfect kingdom and deal with us in that perfect way. So what are the things we might learn from chapter 11 for ourselves? I guess the first thing for us to understand is that ultimately we are able to long for Jesus. Now I think that's really important for people who may not be used to church. Who may be listening to this talk for the first time on our website or who might be here for the first time. And one of the things that I think um, is the experience of lots of people out there on our estate is that we have been exploited, we have been hurt, we have been dealt badly by leaders who we've trusted, who we thought might make life better for us. And we wonder what might be the answer. Is there going to be ever a person that we can trust and follow in the way that all of us were made to follow someone who we admire? And it may be that we're put off. Well, it is interesting, isn't it, that what this part of the Bible tells us is that when bad leaders are bad leaders, they don't get away with it. Look, think about it. If this leader, God's king, didn't get away with it, and what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord saw what happened. If this king won't get away with it, which king or leader ever will? Now we can trust God to give us ultimately a leader we can long for and to act against the leaders who have exploited and used and thrown their weight around and their power for their own purposes. If you're someone who's new then bad leadership has got an answer. We haven't got to the last verse of the world yet when we'll see what displeased God, was displeasing God's sight. But we have got a promise that when that last word is understood and acted on, that we will have a new leader. And it's right that we should be part of his kingdom now, longing for that king to come. If you're someone who's new to Christian things, be a part of that kingdom and long for that perfect king. What happens if you're someone who is part of the church scene and you've been to church before and uh, you know what uh, life uh, is uh, like, you know what's right, what's wrong? Isn't it true that actually church people have the danger that we can cover up what we do with churchy things and everyone looks at us and thinks as Rob said at the start we're up at the front surely we must be squeaky clean in all departments and yet of course we get to the point where we do what we do you see the scale of the thing that we do wrong is not the important thing 
doesn't have to be uh, a major, major uh, flaw as with adultery or murder. It could just be something lesser. The fact is that cover-up doesn't work. That's the thing that we need to be really clear about. There are no secrets that will remain secrets. And one day, uh, the king will come. And one of the chilling verses of the Bible is uh, that verse, or there's three verses in Matthew chapter 7, I think verses 21 to 23, that says, on that day, Jesus will say to many people who say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not do this, this, and this in church in your name? And I will turn around and say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you doers of evil. Because God can see what we're doing and the cover-up with all the other things doesn't work. Far better for us to learn from this story of David and to understand that uh, it is far better to be humble before this God who sees. But the third lesson, I think, for us if you are a genuine believer, and as Rob says, we haven't done those major crimes, that we should understand how easily we can. If David can fall, that is true for you and for me as well. And therefore, it is very important, isn't it, for us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, certainly, your kingdom come, because we long to be like Jesus, rather than to be frail in this kind of way. But at the same time, to know how the Lord's Prayer ends, deliver us from evil. Because you and me can fall as suddenly and as steeply as David did. And we need to be aware of that and be humbled by that. Paul said, didn't he, take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. My friend, what we read about David doing today could easily be you and me tomorrow. And we need to be walking humbly and carefully and depending on God to deliver us from evil because frankly, we are evil and therefore can so easily do what is evil in God's sight. So much do we need his help. Please, would you take this as God's personal word to you as I take it to me, that we need to be very careful, humbly reliant on God to protect us, because we are fragile and helpless and fallen ourselves. Now maybe we can stop there and uh, let me give you a minute perhaps to just think through and to talk through uh, with God how this passage can turn what you heard tonight into a conversation with him. And then after that I'll give you a minute, I'll pray and we'll take some questions because there may be things out of this passage that uh, would be good to talk about a bit more. But let's take a minute first to uh, pray. Heavenly Father, we do want to come before you humbly and to see that what we've learnt about David can so easily be true of us. We know that uh, although we don't go to the lengths that he did, 
the Lord Jesus did tell us that if we look at someone lustfully, that is adultery. And if we get angry, that is murder. And suddenly we find, Father, that David is not such a different person to us. And his world isn't alien to ours. And so we pray for your deep forgiveness. We thank you that uh, the king that uh, followed him, the Lord Jesus, and we thank you that in his perfect love he is able to forgive those who turn to him. And we pray, Lord, that you would please conform us into his likeness, and we pray that you will deliver us from the evil that we can so easily lead ourselves into under the temptation of the enemy. So we pray for your mercy and we pray for your help. And we ask you to change us to be like your son and to live for the glory of his name as we wait for his perfect kingdom. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.